Hey everyone and welcome to the 55th edition DF Direct Weekly. It's our weekly show where unsurprisingly we talk about the latest gaming and technology news. Packed roster this week. Um, wow, so many big news stories. And uh, joining me to talk about it, first of all, John Linneman. Rich, is it really that unsurprising? I don't know, maybe we could surprise people once in a while. <laughs> it's a thought. Maybe they were surprised with the video we put up on Friday, I don't know. Possibly. <laughs> and uh, of course, Alex Battaglia. Hey there, Rich. Hey there, John. Exciting week, exciting content. Cannot wait to talk about it. Well, let's talk about our first uh, big news story of the week. It's uh, the announcement that Sony is revitalizing, rebranding, upgrading uh, its subscription services for PlayStation consoles. Um, PlayStation Plus is evolving into three tiers. Um, perhaps one tier too many, but let's talk about that. Um, PlayStation Plus Essential is essentially PlayStation Plus as it is now. PlayStation Plus Extra is uh, extra money, <laughs> but it also adds a catalog of uh, apparently 400 PS4 and PS5 games to download, including, quote unquote, uh, blockbuster hits from our PlayStation Studios catalog and third party partners. Uh, the third tier, where things are kind of a little bit more murky, I would suggest, uh, there's an additional 340 games. Um, PlayStation 3 titles will be available to stream, and there's going to be access to classic PS1, PS2, and PSP titles to stream or download. Uh, there's also discussion of time-limited game trials uh, for people to uh, try before they buy. So I'm going to go to you on this one, John fully aware that you are not on board with the subscription concept so i'm expecting fireworks no you're absolutely right like this this kind of thing is not made for me i'm not into this and this one i mean to to be blunt it's it's it doesn't seem great and you know of of the three services out there it's pretty clear that microsoft has the lead here so like for those into this type of thing uh but I mean, I guess, you know, they, so they have the regular PS plus stuff, which is fine. So at least nothing changed really, or was lost on that front, I guess, which is good. Uh, I mean, I can kind of see the second tier being okay for some people. Like if you're new to the platform, I guess, you know, having a bunch of games just accessible like that. Uh, although again, I know I'm alone on this, but I, I just, I can't get around the idea of buying an expensive console and then you know you spend hundreds of dollars over the course of several years and then you walk away owning nothing and i don't know that just it doesn't work for me but whatever some people love it that's fine that's what that tier is for the premium one though um i mean it's it's interesting that they're doing ps1 ps2 and psp i'll be curious to see what the quality of that actually is because i don't think ps2 was handled very well on the ps4 uh, but ps1 has traditionally been quite good it was really good on ps3 and um also ps2 of course did it just fine obviously uh psp as well should be interesting because i don't know if you guys know it but the ps3 can also play psp games Yes, uh, right. There's there's ways around it that you can get a lot of PSP games on there, including running them at higher res, which is cool. Uh, so that's interesting. It's it's the PS3 stuff that that kind of annoys me, and I get it, kind of like PS3 is not simple to emulate. 
Uh, I see a lot of talk about RC PS3. It's quite good, but it's far from perfect. Uh, I think, you know, Sony itself could obviously do a much better job since they have access to the hardware, but their last, their last um, forays into emulation haven't been great. Like, the PlayStation Classic was poor. Uh, PS2 and PS4 was not great, so I don't, I don't know what we'd expect there, but I don't know, just putting up PS3 games for streaming, which is something they've done for a while now with PS Now, I believe, yeah. Uh, it just, you know, it just feels like, a, well, we already do this thing, so let's just lump it in here. You know what I mean? And, and what, you know, and I guess the bigger question here is, like, are, are, they, is the PS1, PS2, and PSP stuff now going to be tied exclusively to this service? Will people be able to actually get them separately if they want to have like digital versions of these games? Will it honor prior libraries? Probably not. Uh, I don't know. Like I, none I don't of that think stuff they can take your library away from you. Um, no, 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 no. no, no. What I mean, what I mean is like uh, people have purchased PS1 and PS2 classics on other platforms, right? Right. Yeah, and mm -hmm. I think the good thing to do would be make those accessible here, uh, and I'm not sure that that's going to be the case. And I'm curious to see PSP games as well because you could buy them digitally for like Vita or the PSP Go. Again, that would be nice to have, but there's really no confirmation either way, I guess. So I don't know. I mean, that's that's kind of my rambly thoughts. It's it's not at all interesting to me. Uh, I could see some value for some people, but ultimately, it just feels like. They needed. They want. They felt they needed a service, and this is what they've come up with. And I think fundamentally, where these companies want to make their money is just different. Like clearly, Nintendo and Sony are not seeing the subscription service as their key money maker. Whereas with Microsoft, like clearly, the service is the thing. That's what they want to sell more than anything else, and they have the money to make it happen. So. I was curious what the hell happened to PlayStation Vita, actually, when I looked at the, the list of supported systems, because those are titles that are also locked to PlayStation Vita or locked to PSTV or whatever. And I feel like the DualSense uh, has the capability to do a lot of the things the PS Vita did. I almost feel like that's a missed opportunity. Not exactly, Alex. It's it's missing. You know, I really think it's dumb, but it's missing stuff like the back touch. And with the PSTV, you can kind of hack it and make it kind of work. Front touch, it's, like the DualSense thing? Well, it has know. front and back touch on the Vita, right? It's, it's, it's in like it's, tearaway, right? It's not, it's not too common. So it's not that know. it's not possible. It's just that I think that there's enough games that don't work correctly. And, you know, people made that whitelist for the PSTV. But even with that, like a lot of the games that used more of the functions don't really work very well on there. I feel like there's a way around it that just involves using gyros or I don't know, like there's a lot of emulation routes there uh, to at least let the catalog exist in another form rather than just being locked to the, the little handheld that's gone. Um, that's one thing I worry, was curious about, I guess. I am curious about how many people actually are going to care about the PS3 streaming thing because we've looked at PS Now in the past. It's been a while now. Maybe we are due for a re refresher there, maybe. Um, but, you know, like that quality wasn't very good back then. And It's not good on anything, Alex. That's the yeah. thing. I mean, even uh, so GeForce Now, which is great looking, uh, it has problems. Yeah, I mean, do. yeah, like the, the, the streaming stuff is always an issue, but like... It's just uh, kind of a shame that it's not going to be taken anywhere else in the immediate future. Um, 
you know, no hardware emulation on that side. So those are kind of my thoughts. This is also like John, uh, this is not something I would invest in ever. Um, and I'm really curious about who it is in the marketplace that they want to get this to. Uh, maybe Rich has an idea about that. <laughs> um, well, I think fundamentally it is about uh, leveraging uh, people who invested in the PlayStation ecosystem and essentially getting more money out of them, right? And, that, and you do that by offering value. And this is where we have the bone of contention, right? Which is that you pay a little bit extra and you get 400 games. That's a sizable amount of games. The question is, what are those games? Uh, we have some indication that there'll be some older Sony first-party titles, um, which is great. Uh, but, you know, it, what's happening with the rest of them? Is it quality over quantity? Is it essentially a rebranding of what PlayStation Now does now? which is to say you can download a big bunch of games. Um, it's not exactly uh, been a hugely successful strategy for Sony, right? Um, because the whole point of Game Pass, Game Pass hype is fueled by day one releases of, of all the big games from Microsoft and a big bunch of really good games from other people. There's still that buzz that's missing from this offering. And um, the rest of it just seems to be... Um, a repositioning of stuff that they're already doing. Um, there's a there's obviously uh, some new stuff like the PS1 emulation, um, but we need to see the emulators, right? Um, because I agree I agree with uh, John. It, it seems to me that pretty much post PlayStation Vita, um, Sony's curation of its back catalogue and uh, its ability to uh, for good backwards compatibility is taken a nosedive, right? Um, obviously, with the PlayStation 3, they've got a significant challenge there. And I think we should probably bring in some supporter questions here because they all seem to be much the same. Uh, <laughs> that's a question here from, and I'm going to love reading this one out, Abba Dabba Pling <laughs> Boink Wee. <laughs> uh, Which is, uh, can you imagine that in the Matrix? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Neo Trinity Morpheus Abba Dabba, Abba Dabba Boink Wee. Anyway, he says uh, Sony ain't bothering with PS3 emulation on PS5. They will only do streaming. Do you think that makes makes financial sense? Unfortunately, I feel like emulation support would be great in theory, but not much used in practice. Um, I've truncated that question there as usual. It's a very long one. Keith D. Hi all, with the recent talk about PS Now, PS Plus, I was just curious if the team has any insight on the technology Sony uses for PS3 streaming. Are there actually PS3 motherboards racked in a data center or is Sony running an emulator? Um, again, I've had to truncate that very long question, but the answer is that it is essentially uh, custom server blades, but they are built on PlayStation 3 hardware. The original ones, I believe Nvidia actually helps design them, believe it or not. Um, and a question here from CTG867. Sony's new PS Plus sub, unsurprisingly, only supports PS3 games via streaming. Do you think the PS5's hardware could be capable of PlayStation 3 emulation, at least for most games? Given what RPCS3 has done, I gotta imagine Sony could accomplish much more with their resources and knowledge of the original hardware. Um, that's an interesting question because I've run uh, the emulator on a PlayStation 5 CPU, and it's problematic. Um, everybody sees the best of 
you know, our, uh, of this emulator uh, on YouTube videos and whatnot. But if you actually try it on the hardware, anything that uses the SPUs is really difficult to run. And a lot of the game patches that are used to get games running in a playable state, uh, they are actually stripping out SPU features, typically um, post-processing effects and stuff. That's how they, you're getting that accelerated effects there. So it's not really a good fit. And Sony would have to revamp that emulation pretty much from scratch. Um, and I've also got to take issue with this concept that Sony could accomplish much more with their resources and knowledge of the original hardware. Um, I believe um, I, I believe that uh, the PlayStation 2 emulator on PC, Sony actually hired some of the people who did that to work on their own internal emulators. And um, I've actually spoken to the developers of um, RPCS3 and you know this concept that they don't have access to um, uh, to good documentation. I think that might be flawed. I think it's a really challenging undertaking that they just you know Sony doesn't really see a projected return from. And from their perspective, on a corporate level, quality uh, notwithstanding, they consider this problem to be solved. They considered their acquisition of Gaikai, which was what 180 million dollars or something like that. That was their solution, right? I don't see them coming up with another, you know, tens of millions of dollars investment to get this emulation working when I kind of think they should be. But Rich, isn't it true that uh, uh, there, there's an aspect in the Xbox One SoC that was specifically designed around backwards compatibility to handle certain parts of the pipeline? I, but I believe it was only like support for texture formats used in Xbox oh, 360. Okay. So yeah, so it's not a yeah. deal breaker, as it were. Weird, yeah. but it, um, but very much so. Um, Xbox 360 compatibility for Xbox One was in the original plan. It just wasn't. Um, it, you know, it just had minor tweaks from a hardware perspective to to make that happen. It's pretty clear that it was never in the plans, really, in terms of the hardware engineering. And I, I actually think this is the biggest shame because you look at like PlayStation Two games by and large. Uh, a lot of the best ones, they run at 60 frames per second already, and they look good for the time. PlayStation 3, even more so than Xbox 360, is packed with games that run terribly. There's so many bad performing games on the PS3. Uh, Xbox 360 games were given new life on Xbox One and up because of these enhancements, because they're essentially able to overcome all these problems. And man, the PS3 library could really use that. Uh, and unfortunately I just don't think these, these emulators that are for PCs and stuff are really neat to play with, but they don't, they never seem to provide the optimal experience that you would really want. Uh, there's always, there's always caveats to them, I find. Uh, so I've so... got the perfect solution to this whole PS3 emulation debacle. Oh no. Oh. Oh no! Just buy it. <laughs> you can enjoy all those 3. torn frames. <laughs> <laughs> the PlayStation Three, right? This is the original US launch model that has full PS2 backwards compatibility, works with PS1. I mean, this is your retro solution. Right? Are you trying to say they already have a product for that? I mean, uh, th think about you know people joke about the PS3 in its early days because the software lineup was a bit dire initially outside of Ridge Racer, uh, but like despite 
that high cost. It played PlayStation 1, 2, and 3 games, DVDs, CDs, Super Audio CDs, you know, Blu-ray movies. It had, like, tons of USB ports. It had the, like, card reader on the front. Uh, it, it allowed you to install Linux on it. Like, there was just so much stuff jammed in the box. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's kind of cool in retrospect because we've never seen that again. Uh, that kind of, like, freedom... Uh, that they offered there. Yeah, and also the uh, legacy support for prior PlayStations. There did seem to be a, an acknowledgement that that continuity was needed, that you needed to bring those older games with you onto the current generation system. And then obviously it proved to be financially unviable for the PlayStation 3, which was, you know, this thing here is like a... was <laughs> It was a massive cash trade on Sony's uh, resources. They lost billions so they had to make those compromises. And lo and behold, you know, um, it didn't seem to have an impact on their bottom line. And so it became less of um, less of a priority for the company going forward. Right. But that has kind of led us to the situation now where we have um, uh, Microsoft that is cu- you know, doing its best to curate the generations of prior Xbox content and to keep it playable on, on current gen systems. And Sony's kind of catching up, trying to catch up, but isn't really able to because of, you know, legacy debt, as it were. See, the big problem with all of the modern approaches to backwards compatibility, uh, Sony, Microsoft as well, as good as the Xbox stuff is, because of how they have to do it through repackaging games, that's what forces them to deal with all the licensees and everything, the, the rights holders, whereas systems that just natively play old software... It, it seems like you don't need to jump through those hoops, right? Like, you can play any uh, GameCube game on a Wii. You can play any PlayStation or PlayStation 2 game on that PS3 you have, right? The only ones that don't work are the ones that actually had technical reasons for not working, but otherwise the whole library was there. Uh, same with, you know, just like all of the various Game Boys that Nintendo did, DS games on 3DS. The nature of that meant that they could just play the whole library, but with this need, like the way PS2 worked on PS4 and the way the Xbox stuff works, because they have to repackage it, there's certain games that will never be re-released uh, because of license problems, right? Like we're never going to see Jet Set Radio Future uh, on Xbox, you know, as far as I, I'm aware, because they weren't able to sort the licensing issues with the music. And, you know, that, that kind of stuff, that is the one downside. But I don't think that they could have done these enhancements any other way, right? Like, I don't think they could have just run them straight off the disc and actually made improvements uh, without this. So it's kind of a give or take. I think also the marketing for this reveal has been quite lackluster. There's not been any kind of um, attempt to make any of this sound really cool or interesting. It's just volume of games, as far as I can see. Uh, I guess there is some marginal level of excitement by saying, okay, if you go to a higher tier, you get access to Spider-Man, Mars Morales, Returnal. Um, So it makes me wonder whether they'll be going for an EA access slash EA play style approach where older titles will be gradually added to uh, to, to the library. That's probably where that free trial thing comes in they were talking about, because I think EA does that as well. Uh, I find like when Grid Legends, which I picked up and is awesome, that had a trial on EA Access or whatever. So you could sample the game for a bit, see how it is, but you didn't actually get the full game that way. 
Um, so I think that seems to be the model they're taking. Yeah, so, you know, I think the jury's out on this. I don't think, you know, you're quite right. This is a question of focus, right, John? I mean, basically, Microsoft has gone all in on Game Pass to the point where one could argue that um, Game Pass is more important to Microsoft than its Xbox consoles because they want uh, the Xbox platform to be bigger than just consoles, right? And this is their... This is their hook to make that happen. And, you know, it's proving quite successful. And you're quite right that um, Nintendo and Microsoft, um, uh, sorry, Nintendo and Sony are kind of thinking, well, we need to up our game in the subscription stakes as well. But it's not their fundamental focus. So the offerings are not quite as compelling. Um, And, yeah, I guess we'll just have to be patient to see what they actually come up with here because it is seemingly still uh you know quite vague (laughs) the thing about game pass is you know it's so their focus i guarantee like if they were able to put that on playstation 5 and like have their games day and date on a ps5 they'd probably do it because they they want to get that service everywhere and uh you know i have to admit i i don't like subscriptions in general but that one I have actually used for some titles um, and they do, they are doing a good job with it. There's just no way around it. That's, it's a very compelling service, especially these days with the cost of games. I mean, I'm fortunate enough that I can still get the games I want to play, but uh, when you're asking so much money for this stuff, especially with European prices, it's like, you know, it's kind of, it's like, Oh, you want to pay 80 euros for a brand new game or you can just play it here. And then if you like it, just wait till it's cheaper and then buy it or something. You know what I mean? Uh, that's that's pretty good. So I, I see the method there, <laughs> the method to the madness. It is quite interesting, though, John. We are sort of going off on a tangent here, but the whole discussion of $70 games on PlayStation 5 is kind of like just part of the picture and arguably a minor part compared, you know, compared to the priorities of, of people like us in Europe, where these games are far more than $70. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, they're incredibly expensive they're actual proper sizable investments at that point with all the VAT stuff and just the general increase in price like you know I, I'm buying games here out of my US account so I see it subtracted in US dollars uh, and you can actually you can see if I import from the United States right now to Germany it's actually sometimes cheaper or the same as just buying it locally uh, which is kind of absurd. Okay, I think that's it for uh, PlayStation Plus. Let's move on. There was much surprise, or perhaps not so much surprise, that uh, The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild 2 for Nintendo Switch has been delayed until spring 2023. Uh, short announcement video this week, along with some new footage. And uh, I don't know. What do you make of this one, John? I was going to say, I'd imagine, you know, the teams, even though they would sell anyway, but like, you know, the guys working on the new God of War or, you know, Bethesda working on, on Starfield, they probably had a bottle of champagne ready to go for this moment. <laughs> like, yes. It's like, we don't have to worry about this thing. Different Would markets and all that. But, anyway? yeah. but, you know, I'm just saying this Breath of the Wild 2 is probably going to be very large. Do you have any opinions? I mean, what do we know about the game so far? Um, compared to the first one. They're showing a lot of stuff in the sky, which is interesting. And I'm really fascinated to see what they do there. My guess, and I'm really curious, is that I I have to wonder if the scope of the game has changed during development, 
where because just calling it Breath of the Wild Two makes it seem like you know just like a little bit of a numbered sequel, which is unusual for the franchise, where it felt like all oh, they're just going to build upon what they did in the first game and then add some more stuff and go from there. But it's starting to look more ambitious, which doesn't surprise me at all. And uh, I really hope they. My biggest issue with the original was the lack of like proper dungeon-like areas where I like the ebb and flow of open world and then you get these tightly designed areas and then back to open world. That's what Elden Ring does, in fact, and that's one of the reasons I love it. You kind of had that in Breath of the Wild, but it didn't. that's the only real issue with that game. So I am happy to see that there's some interesting new visual stuff that suggests uh, a, a, an increase in scale. But this trailer was interesting because the image quality seemed quite good, I, I think. I was a little bit surprised by how sharp and clear this looked compared to the original in general. Do you have any thoughts on that, Alex? Because initially we were looking at that trailer. I think uh, it was Bob from Retro RGB that piped up on Twitter saying, "Does this is this, is this actually running on the Switch? And I think there is a uh, sort of, it is up for debate, isn't it? I honestly don't think it is, um, just because we have seen so very rarely volumetric clouds on Switch. And these are like not breaking down super obviously. Another thing that was really obvious in the trailer was camera cuts uh, having like perfect anti-aliasing, which is uh, even rare for an Xbox Series X or PlayStation 5 game. Um, I don't know what that means necessarily. It could be the next Switch. It could be just um, they rendered out a trailer at high, uh, high resolution and higher settings. But the thing they, is, Alex, is they never do that. Well, right? kind of like the original Breath of the Wild reveal had much further draw distance than the than the game when it released. I remember that being a thing with like. Oh the yeah, grass. yeah. But in terms of like actual resolution bump to their trailers, we don't. I don't think they ever really do that. I, I don't know if uh, Nintendo's ever done that, but you know, like the idea of rendering out a trailer, we see every other game company doing that. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me so much in terms of what the game industry is all about. Uh, but I just generally think that since they are delaying it now, uh, I think this is going to be the equivalent of what we saw with Breath of the Wild then, where it launches on the old and also on the new, and we see the nice benefits of the new there um, regarding Switch Pro, Switch 2, Switch EX, whatever. Um, so. That's what I think about that. I'm really curious, though, that uh, if they do want to run those clouds at all on Switch, because, man, like, Switch is cool and all, but, like, volumetric rendering is really, really expensive, to say the least. And it was. Uh, a lot of it seemed to be at 1080p, but I think uh, we we deployed Tom Morgan <laughs> to look at it, and he found uh, a 720p area as well. Uh, so I'm I'm wondering whether... Well, you know, we know that the Nintendo engine does dynamic resolution scaling. Uh, so that is, I mean, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that it is actually running on native hardware with those two uh, caveats in mind. But I agree that the the leap in image quality compared to the first title is uh, stark, to say the least. I know people usually expect evolution in terms of visual features in console games, but I think we see less of that now because... You know, when that happened during the PS3 era, developers were also learning these techniques, learning how to deploy them. Yeah, there was they were a lot coming of stuff. into existence, you know. Yeah, there was time. stuff that didn't exist before that was being discovered, developed, and deployed that generation. So it felt like a gigantic leap, but it wasn't so much that they were just learning the hardware, although maybe in the PS3's case it kind of is, but they were actually just coming up with new ideas. Those ideas now exist and have been implemented 
as of the Switch launch, and I think that's why we haven't seen any dramatic shift in terms of capabilities and like visual quality in games. We have seen improvements for sure, but we haven't seen you know, changes in rendering paradigms or anything like that. It's no Uncharted 1, Uncharted 3, you know? Like, that's the classic example, like, I would say, like, that's huge. Uh, well, I guess that's all we've got to say about that for the time being, but I'm really looking forward to this game, and uh, obviously there is the specter of, you know, a new version of the Switch coming out, which likely would run the game exactly as it was seen there, if not better. Um, so yeah, this, this asset certainly raises some questions and uh, I'm going to be interested to see what the answers are, but let's move on. So this week, finally, we actually had the release or rather the embargo lift on the RTX 3090 Ti, which is essentially the RTX 3090 with a new PCB, some uh, changes to the design there, uh, extra CUDA cores and extra 256, I believe and a frankly gigantic increase in power draw. Now, the 3090 itself was already a bit of a power-hungry beast at 350 watts. Uh, you know, typically prior generations have topped out at 250, so this was, you know, a significant bump. This one goes up to 450, and I believe there are some models that actually touch five, 500 watts. <laughs> cool, bro. Cool. I mean, this is stuff that is actually going to have you know, a tangible impact on your energy bill, especially in the current uh, current climate. More than that, Rich, it's going to make, you're going to have to be very cautious with selecting your power supply for your PC uh, because that's a ton. <laughs> it's going to destroy those cheap power supplies. There's been various reports on how much extra performance you get uh, with the 3090 Ti over the 3090 and I think it's PC Gamer here suggesting that an overclocked 3090 Ti is uh, tops out at about 14% faster than a 3090. I'm going to go to you, Alex, for your thoughts on this one. They have all these chips lying around that some that are perfect 3090s, and they can segment the market in another way, uh, which they've shown to really love doing in the past with 3060 Ti, 3070, 3070 Ti cards that, on in general, should have all just been one card almost. Um, uh, and I feel like that's what this is. This is I Nvidia's think there is proper segmentation between 3060 Ti and, and 3070. It's the difference yeah. between a 2080 Super and a, and a 2080 uh, Ti, yeah, Ti, for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But like, you know, like it's just Nvidia's loving of segmentation. I feel like this is what this is born out of. Um, and I don't see any real um, benefit for uh, someone who's really looking for best game performance. I think you should be looking at a 3080 Ti or 3090 in general there, uh, and then aftermarket solutions, uh, which is what you're going to get. You know, you can overclock those already in general, and you can probably also adjust. You know, aftermarket solutions are also going to have voltage control uh, and things like that. And the card's already so hot and power hungry, anyways. I don't think this is a, a very compelling product at all. I think it's just more they have these chips and they can do this. Um, the thing uh, that I am kind of curious about is actually what happens in those scenarios versus the 3090 when you do see it uh, bumping up against the 350 watt uh, on the 3090. I can see that sometimes in games when you're fully unlocked and you're benching and you see like the, the core go down pretty hard. Uh, I think you probably have also seen that rich to a certain degree, not super hard, but you know, I'm really curious what the 3090 Ti does in a situation like that. Um, 
the same point, this is releasing now in March of 2022. We're just getting onto April here when this uh, video comes out. And in what, September or October, they're going to be releasing the next uh, GPUs from NVIDIA, where I imagine the mid-tier section, the, 37, the 4070 series or so, will be around 3090 levels of performance, I would imagine. Yeah, one would hope. One would hope. And at that point in time, I'd feel a little... I'd feel a little silly investing in such a big graphics card at this point in time and not waiting a little bit. I mean, this is like a $2,000 product, basically, um, which is uh, quite remarkable, but it basically speaks to an audience that doesn't really care about value. And and that it's not as if this is the first product that does this, but arguably in terms of the uh, price versus performance bump, uh, it's probably f uh, less value. But, you know, we saw it with Titan XP. Uh, we saw it with um, Titan Black. So it's not as if it's anything new here, but um, I'd say this is a very, very niche product. This is a product for the type of person that has is able to source these graphics cards near release. They utilize them to their ex fullest extent. And then when the next generation arrives, they immediately obtain that and then sell this one to offset the cost of the new one. And they're just constantly changing the card. And I know people that do this, and I suspect that's exactly who this is targeting. But you're right. We've seen a huge amount of segmentation, all based on the same processor. So, you know, we're looking at 3080, which I still think is arguably the, the best proposition for most people from this processor. 3080 Ti, 3090, <laughs> 3090 Ti now. It all kind of depends on what you can get, I think, as well. Well, that's been the thing, right? Because, um, you know, a lot of people have bought 3080 Ti's because they were able to get one vaguely close to MSRP. And the alternative is a scalped 3080 for the same price, which has lower performance. That's, it's, it's, a really, it's been a really tough marketplace out there. And if things do ease up, and there is actual evidence now that things are easing up, then uh, it'll be great news for people that, you know, be quite happy with the 3080, which I still think is the you know probably the best overall um, package of the generation. I, I only discovered this a couple of years ago when looking at the overclocking stuff, I guess, or before, the, I don't know, it's not even been out two years, but the, the 3090 and 3090 Ti PCB, we should show it on screen here because I'm not sure everybody has seen this weird shape that they take. When you remove the cooler, it's got that like sort of like hard uh, geometric edge on it. That's just, it, it's fun. It's a, it's a weird looking board. And, you know, if you're not taking your 3090 apart to add water cooling, you may not have seen it. Yeah, I mean, I don't really know who this product is supposed to appeal to other than the guys that always want the absolute best of the best of the best and don't mind paying thousands of dollars for the privilege. And it's not as if this is anything new. I mean, we can go all the way back to, what, the 8800 GTX? Which I think was a thousand dollar card. The Ultra, the Ultra, the Ultra, yes. Ultra, yes. Which again was like you know it was hugely expensive for the time, um, and again only a few people would have bought it. But um, yes, we are seeing a lot of segmentation on the on the GA one hundred and two, and arguably thirty eighty Ti, thirty ninety. You don't really need much beyond that. And price versus performance, thirty eight, uh, thirty eighty base for me all the way. But you know there we go. Um, I don't have anything more to add to this, so, well, let's move on to the next topic, which is new and exciting. So this week, Intel announced 
that its ARC discrete GPUs are actually coming to market very soon now. And um, what is the monkey's poor twist? <laughs> I got excited the, for this presentation. <laughs> the yeah. monkey's poor twist is that it's, it's a, a notebook component. It's nothing to do with the desktop arena quite yet. And it's also the lower power um, SOC. There's two SOCs. This is the least capable one. Um, but there's certainly much to discuss in the briefing that we saw yesterday, right, Alex? I guess uh, confirmation of timetables is really important. Er like summer, early summer is uh, the higher end arc uh, release date, including uh, we also got all this, uh, the lowdown of the specs of all these chips. Um, you know, uh, we'll put them very awesomely in an article uh, that I recommend everyone check out. I really liked seeing the, the high amounts of VRAM and those uh, mid to upper high-end chips there, which I feel like NVIDIA dropped the ball with regarding its mid to upper-end chips, because we're going to be seeing probably something like higher-end ARC competing with 3070, 3070 Ti, but it's going to have double the amount of VRAM, and I'm, I think that's a really nice bargain if, if you're actually seeing those competition levels there. So that's really cool. Um, and uh, another thing we saw also as well as we saw, it's still not the perfect way to demonstrate it, I really wish they did it differently. The, some of their GDC presentations did it a bit better, uh, but they showed off Intel XESS running actually in a 4K feed, which we've otherwise not seen before yet. And um, you can definitely see that at least in comparison to this 1080p source image with TAA, that is doing quite a lot of work there. Um, definitely, I would say, within the ballpark of what we expect from something that is competing with DLSS. Oh, and as well as Intel XCSS being shown, we've also seen a variety of the titles, and I think there's 20 promised titles. A number of, there's a lot of smaller end titles that I've never really heard of before, uh, but some of those have to do with the fact that as per, as per GDC, Intel is going to be supporting XCSS plugin, much like there's a DLSS plugin for UE 4.26 and above. I'm not sure about UE5, like the way NVIDIA is doing and the way uh, AMD is doing with FSR 2.0, uh, but I know that for a fact. So we're definitely going to see some really easy UE4 integrations, as well as a couple of titles that already are doing all of the, you know, up upscalers and image reconstruction tech in there. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, Death Stranding with that, because I think that's a pretty good DLSS integration in general. So I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with that. Uh, but other than that, I think one thing is if we do get a hands-on with one of these laptops, uh, it would be really interesting to see how it compares to um, desktop like GTX 1050, GTX 1060, GTX 970, or even the RTX uh, series of cards. Because these are already going to be Intel Arc, they're going to be capable of ray tracing VRS and all these things. And we could get at least a good sense of how they scale relative to the, to the, you know, to the NVIDIA side of things, I think, really well here. Yeah, I mean, going back to XESS, there was discussion that um, the support for the other GPUs via the DP4A pipeline uh, seems to be going seems to be set back it'll be later uh which is which is disappointing um but otherwise yeah there's some really exciting stuff here and i think there was actually one thing one slide that actually caught people's imagination and uh you know there was a hearty round of online applause for which is simply that um 
Intel's equivalent to GeForce experience isn't going to require a login. <laughs> Which, you know, absolutely, absolutely, this should get a round of applause because, you know, tying GeForce experience to a login is infuriating. There's no doubt about it. It's not even just a login. There's always a captcha. Like, is this a plane? Is this a bike? Yes, it's a plane. It's a bike. Thank you. Oh. NVIDIA. Yeah, and I can never remember my password for GeForce Neither can experience. I. I've got like six <laughs> accounts there at this point. Yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah, um, I think um, I'm really looking forward to seeing the laptop side of things. Not so much because I'm expecting stellar performance, because I'm not. I'm expecting, you know, competitive performance. Uh, but we will get to see what um, the features, the software features that are supporting the hardware are going to look like, what the control panel will look like. Um, what kind of hardware level driver features we should be expecting, because that's kind of all up in the air at the moment. And um, it looks as though they're putting a bit of thought into it, which I think is fantastic. So, yeah, and I agree with you, Alex. My, my sort of um, main takeaway from this, uh, looking at the higher end offerings, is that they aren't um, holding back on VRAM. And um, this does put pressure on NVIDIA because obviously uh, the Radeon cards shipped with 16 gigs, the 6,000, uh, 6,800 series. They all shipped with 16 gigs, which I think was a great thing to do. And if you now have um, competitive pressures from all around saying, look, we really need this extra memory, uh, that will force uh, improvements in the products, which I think is only a good thing. Um, but yeah, it's really going to be interesting to see where these uh, laptops land in terms of, of performance. But I don't think they're aiming at the high end in in the in the short term, at least. And um, to me, this is kind of um, contrary to the way that product uh, lineups usually roll out, which is that you get the flagship product first, sets the hype level, and then you scale back. Whereas with this, we're we're starting with the lowest of the low, and then you know it's jam tomorrow, right? <laughs> which um, is uh, probably you know a logical way to do things, but it's certainly not the most exciting way. I'm I'm curious to see how it, how it goes, uh, but with Nvidia releasing their new cards later this year as well, um, I mean they're going to have some pretty uh, stiff competition, right? So it feels like it's something that we've been waiting on for a while now, and it's still it's taking time to roll out. So we'll see. Yeah, I was also intrigued by uh, the other features they were talking about, like the AI acceleration. Um, they were specifically targeting um, Topaz Video Enhance, which we use occasionally, which is, a, which is super slow on anything I've ever run it on. <laughs> so I'm going to be interested to see how fast that actually is. And just generally, it's clear that, um, uh, that there's been a divide in the graphics space, right? I mean, NVIDIA has been pushing hard on... Um, hardware accelerated ray tracing and machine learning. AMD hasn't been, to, to be honest. Um, but now we see, again, competitive pressure. Intel want to take that fight to NVIDIA. That's pretty clear. And ultimately, that's going to lead to better products all around from all vendors, which I think is, which I think is fantastic. Um, but OK, let's move on to the next topic. Okay, our final news, our final news yes. story of the week, and it's um, it's seismic. Mm. It's senses shattering. <laughs> Sony has filed a new trademark for NAC, and uh, John, this this can only be good news, right? I mean, I I hope it's NAC three. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's you know what else, what else do you want? Or maybe it's, it is the dream, isn't it? Or maybe NAC's coming back for PSVR two. Oh, that's a good one. 
So that's a good one, John. You get to see. I mean, all it's all speculation at this point, right? Yeah, yeah, it's it? all speculation, but you know. <laughs> but, but, but clearly, I mean, Sony is attaching some value to the NAC IP. They don't want to get any uh, IP squatters getting in, you know, getting a slice of the NAC action. And hey, PS5 is the first console that can play NAC one at sixty frames per second. <laughs> <laughs> I think you know, NAC has been kind of like a figure of fun for some time, but NAC two was pretty good, right? Yeah, it is actually good, especially with kids playing in co-op mode. It's quite good for that, so I actually I, I like the game. I think it's not nearly as it's fun to joke on. I don't think the character itself is a especially appealing, but the actual core gameplay is pretty fun. The one thing I like about Knack is that it is a focus uh, from Sony, and I would like to see this from Microsoft as well, uh, of like a dedicated platformer. Um, you know that it actually has some release you know, hype about it. Like they put some money behind it. The, the, the visuals, the core visuals are pretty good and high tech. I like that about Mac a lot. And I wish we did see a bit more of that uh, from Microsoft and uh, Sony these days. So maybe when Mac comes back, there's going to be a resurgence. Let's, let's hope. I just like the confidence there. When Mac comes back. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when. <laughs> okay, uh, well, let's move on. Okay, so we're going to be taking some questions from the DF Supporter Program. So here's the deal, right? Every week, uh, Wednesday typically, we put a post on our Patreon saying, what do you want to ask us? Ask us anything. Uh, we typically get, I don't know, around 50 questions. For the uh, purposes of timing, we have to pare it down to the ones that we're kind of able to answer <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a meaningful way. So we've got a bunch here and uh, yeah, let's let's kick off with the first one from uh, Neon5, I guess. A couple of questions actually, um, certainly Steam Deck related. And uh, this first question, hello gentlemen, not sure if this, if this has been asked already, but now that you already have some experience under your belt with Steam Deck, what's your opinion about Steam Deck possibly utilizing FSR 2.0? or XESS using DP4A. Any insider hints if it's coming? This one's pretty uh, open and shut, right, Alex? Yeah, I mean, it can, uh, right? Uh, there's nothing preventing it hardware-wise other than what Rich just said about, unfortunately, DP4A uh, for XESS apparently being delayed uh, to a degree. That, that kind of sucks. But I don't see anything wrong with that. I just think uh, looking at the cost of in work in progress cost of FSR 2.0 on an RX 6800 XT going up to 4K uh, from 1080p source was over a millisecond. I know that. And on something like, you know, the really low end RDNA 2 there inside uh, Steam Deck, it's going to have a pretty sizable cost. So. The question is at that point, are you gaining so much that you're willing to pay that cost when you could have lesser quality for better performance and battery life? So that's that's my question. Maybe like a default TAAU, which is less robust, is actually better just for the platform. So yes, but at the same time, no. So I mean, you're that's targeting. my answer. An 800p screen, right? So yes, you go from like 240p <laughs> up to that and see how I it mean, goes. Like it has its limitations. <laughs> We've already seen that with DLSS. Like, I, st I actually think DLSS uh, performance mode at 1080p is pretty good. I still think it's pretty great. Um, 
but it, it's like efficiency goes down with the lower input resolutions. It's going to be probably even more hardcore for something like uh, FSR 2.0. So, yeah. Sorry if that's not a very uh, satisfying answer. Well, um, from my perspective, obviously, I've been doing a lot of testing on the Steam Deck, and I'm actually finding that TAAU is absolutely brilliant for the Steam Deck. And, uh, you know, I can get Flight Simulator running really well on uh, the Steam Deck, which shouldn't really be viable. And part of the reason why it is viable is that I don't need to render at 720p or 800p. I can render at like 0.7 of that, which is like uh, 720p would be something like 504p. And uh, there is a big performance win for doing that. The question is, to what extent um, FSR will have uh, its own computational cost, as Alex says. But I think the actual um, uh, concept of rendering a lower resolution and then using TAAU to take you up to the screen's native resolution, it's not going to be perfect on all games, but the fact that you're running on a handheld screen uh, certainly helps. And uh, titles like Metro Exodus Enhanced Edition, which I have run pretty well on Steam Deck, and Flight Simulator, these two titles, you just can't really imagine them working well on a 15-watt APU. But they do, and part of the reason that they do is because of TAA upscaling. But these specific techniques, I don't really see any reason why they wouldn't work. The question is what their computational cost is where we don't really know at the moment, uh, which is, <laughs> that's the thing, right? These are technologies that aren't out that we can't test, but we certainly will be testing them. Uh, but Alex, Something that we should be talking about more generally is that you have now received a Steam Deck, and uh, we haven't we haven't heard from you about uh, there's been some oblique Steam decadence comments on Twitter, but uh, why don't we while we're here why don't we get your first impressions? Uh, I think it's uh, a great piece of kit. I the so like first impressions were oh this uh, takes a little bit to update. Uh, you know you have to turn it on it boots, it has to update Steam, requires Steam login, at least in the default Steam Deck OS uh, configuration. And uh, But then you get in, and I just started downloading games right away with little to no problem. I only had two incompatibilities. One I could work around, one I could not in uh, games. I tried out, for example, I like the, like, I actually don't think I would use this device so often for real-time experiences, like uh, a first-person shooter, uh, necessarily, even though it is a lot of fun. But I really, like, if I think about how I enjoy gaming on the go, if I do, I like the idea of like tactics and strategy games that are not real time. And so I really wanted to try out the Sega Genesis uh, 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 collection that Sega put out a number of years ago uh, that uses Unity front end and it has an emulator. And I wanted to try out uh, some games on that. And there, like the front end worked, the Unity front end worked. But when you get in game to the, any of these, you know, emulated experiences there, uh, there would be audio, but no visuals, unfortunately. And, you know, so like there's, there's still minor incompatibilities. Valve wants, would like uh, people that have their hands already on Steam Deck to be updating uh, compatibility profiles for them and like, you know, giving, Valve information about how uh, these uh, different things work, but my first impressions were really high. I didn't, I did notice the the when playing at like 60 FPS unlocked. 
I did definitely notice the higher pitched coil whine in the, or like the higher pitched noise there yeah, from the fan. The fan. Yeah, and like that's the thing that I noticed at 30 FPS locks or an older game, it definitely wasn't that much of a problem at all. And I already have like hearing issues. So it was, I was like, I already don't hear that well anyway, so it's fine. Um, but then uh, another <laughs> thing I noticed- That's a pretty drastic solution. To, yeah, pretty uh... drastic solution, get hearing damage. That's, that's how you use the Steam Deck. And then another thing I noticed, I would say is that uh, Default 1280 by 800 isn't necessary. 720p is pretty all right. You do lose a bit of that vertical space, which I actually do like. 16 by 10 is great. Um, uh, and also, I think sub-native is not as bad as you may think. I think screen size is pretty important. Uh, I've been like saying the, this all along when talking about the Switch and everything. Yeah. yeah. But competent anti-losing, I still think, is oh. a must. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, yeah. it helps a yeah. lot. But Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, like, <laughs> smooth edges that are at least well interpolated up, that helps quite a bit. Uh, only other thing that I would say is a minor complaint at the moment is that... Uh, I, is that... Uh, that the screen isn't overly bright. And if you're like, I was just playing in uh, just like the usual place where I can chill on a bed and just the evening sun peeking in was competing with the screen's brightness at, at moments. And it wasn't like hitting my eyes or something. So you're saying that the, the Steam Deck screen cannot compete with the sun in terms of brightness. <laughs> yes. And that is a huge design flaw. <laughs> I have no idea what they were thinking. Um, I think the put to sleep option and re get into game option is incredibly useful uh i've i've used it every single time i've powered up the deck uh it does have an ambient uh battery drain doing that uh though i'm pretty sure uh that you can feel if you load it back up again um but you know that's awesome stuff i think it is a really wonderful little machine i didn't find it too big yeah that's the weird thing right because you know i can put my steam deck you know i can rest it on top of a 13 inch laptop and it's the same width which when you think about it it's quite bizarre and unexpected and it is huge but it does still work as a portable device that's the thing i found it fine but i you know i'm an, an adult uh, so I have those kind of hands. Um, so maybe that's a thing for children. They'd find it less useful. It was really easy to get working. That was the thing. Like, um, you know, when you load up a title uh, on PC, you don't always expect it to work perfectly out of the gate. But I found a lot of the titles I were loading up just worked rather fine. So kudos to Valve for getting, um, you know, their VK3D Proton working so well already. Uh, and like I joked on Twitter, like even bizarro old titles like Bad Rats run on the Steam Deck, uh, which I was really happy to see. So Steam Deck, really cool. I want to cover it. I think after there's some other videos, there's a lot of, there's always content to be made. Um, exactly. Content right? never sleeps. It never sleeps. It's always in my brain. But I do think actually Can It Run Crisis is a valid uh, video. And I think there's a lot of cool, there's a lot of... There's a lot of things that you can do, maybe even beyond the options menu in Crisis Remastered, which I'm thinking about looking into like the config files to make like a really good Crisis config there. Uh, so maybe look out for that on the channel. I think the big surprise for me, having now tested on Windows, is that um, actually the Windows driver is really bad. Um, 
and um, the valve driver. Actually, it's an I think it's an open source Radeon driver that they're using there, RADV, and it's actually really good. There are, there are actually um, games that are running a lot better under Proton than they are on Windows, which just staggers me, to be honest. But it is what it is. All part of um, the master plan. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it is, you know, we're hearing now that uh, SteamOS is going to run on Chromebooks using the Proton compatibility layer. That's it's better than PS4 you know, now? Well, yeah. we've seen, we have seen um, a customized build of Linux. It's not SteamOS, but it oh. does incorporate elements. Uh, and it is able to run PC games on a on a exploited PS4, which is <laughs> which is fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, I'm kind of seeing Proton in a completely different light now as a way to liberate Steam from Windows um, as a strategic goal. I think it's it's genius, but only if it works. And they seem to be making big strides there. And the Steam Deck product is is excellent. And we've got this next um, question from Malga. My question would be regarding the Steam Deck. In its current state, it is a niche product, so most developers will not care about bringing optimized game settings to the device. But do you see a chance that could change? And what do you think Valve needs to do to make it a mass market product, sh shifting developer focus to it? Yeah. Um, so here's the thing, right? I mean, a lot of the time, developer support occurs organically because the device is cool. Not so much that it's going to be a major money spinner for them, but simply by having support for these features, they get good marketing vibes from it. And um, absolutely, the Steam Deck is cool. And absolutely, it's really impressive to see it running like Flight Simulator or Cyberpunk 2077. Interestingly, um, CD Projekt Red uh, pumped out a um, patch for Cyberpunk 2077 that had a Steam Deck preset. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, it didn't work, uh, <laughs> which is which, you know, when I'm doing a video about, you know, games that shouldn't run on Steam Deck, but do really well. The concept of having curated settings from CD Projekt Red on Cyberpunk would have been really helpful. Uh, I did actually contact CDPR about it, saying, look, if it doesn't work, can you just tell me what the settings are? And... Uh, uh, and, and I'll just put it in manually. They didn't want to know, which is a bit unfortunate. So I guess we'll have to wait for that. Um, but yeah, I think um, uh, absolutely. Um, I don't think it actually requires a huge amount of effort to generate optimized settings uh, for the Steam Deck based on my experiences. You just have to be aware of you know specific limitations and account for them. I don't know what you reckon about that, Alex. What do you think about this concept of um, developer-led optimized settings for Steam Deck. Is it, it's not that onerous a challenge, is it? I don't think it's a huge investment of time for the developer, but I also feel like this could, this should once again be something that is built into the Steam Deck and Valve and the way they're distributing games um, that they download and they already have a config file in place that is Steam Deck settings, Steam Decked already. Um, I always feel like that's the way it should and could be done. And then you can configure from there if you wish. Um, like, I, I think since they're already doing that with Proton, they're already getting rid of the ability or wanting to get rid of the ability of this Linux ports being on the developer. And they want it to actually be like, actually, it just works. And we're doing the heavy lifting. Um, I think that should also maybe apply to the settings as well. Um, I feel like that 
is a better usage of time. Yeah, it's an interesting thought because obviously we saw a Valve software adapt Proton to optimize Elden Ring. So I'd imagine the effort that went into that is as, you know, is kind of like order of magnitude more than basically having uh, some curated quality presets for a good experience. Uh, let's move on to the next question. Uh, hey, DF, given the recent news on XESS and FSR 2.0, I remembered we had this little thing called DirectML being developed, which I didn't hear a lot about lately. We know that FSR slash FSR 2.0 was already done with in-house software on consoles. What about DirectML? Um, Series X has support for it. I would, I could only assume this would recreate the image similar to DLSS and we could get the sweet 1080p render to 4K image output, which could keep the 60 FPS, which could keep 60 FPS alive on console a bit longer. DirectML, as Microsoft stated, could also be applied to gameplay elements, i.e. crowds. What is your take on DirectML? I guess I've got to go to you again on this one, Alex. David uh, Leslow here, you have a good idea of what it is, but you know, it's just um, an API, a series of instructions to address the GPU here, direct ML. Um, so whatever a developer does with it, given the hardware constraints, is up to them. Whatever Microsoft does with it is up to them. We haven't seen anything there for quite some time. Uh, but then again, the clouds have parted, we do see that apparently there is going to be ray tracing in Minecraft on Series X, at least, at some point in the future. So maybe the clouds are going to part at some point very soon about direct ML usage for an image reconstruction technique on Xbox Series X and Series S. I think there's a lot of confusion. I've seen people get confused over what direct ML is and throwing it around as if, oh, it's like you got DLSS and you got direct ML and it's like, no, it's, it's, it's an API. Like you could create something like DLS using direct ML, I suppose, but it's not that specifically is not a competitor in the image reconstruction space. And we actually, actually we asked Intel why they didn't use direct ML for X, XESS and they just didn't think it was good enough. <laughs> I think that was the bottom line, wasn't it? When we spoke to them in that interview. Yeah, that was what was said. Uh, and they are hoping that, I mean, there's a lot of, they have their own, desires there to capitalize on their market and have exclusivity for certain things. So with that little bit of salt there, um, I, I still think, you know, like they said that because it's probably true that they want something a little bit better, a little bit more robust uh, for when eventuality occurs that we have cross-platform image-based image reconstruction that uses AI. But there's another part of this question. Um, no, there, there really isn't. <laughs> I kind of explained <laughs> it. I was hoping that there would be another part where I'm not just explaining what DirectML is. But yeah, I really want to see this happening on Xbox. I think on Xbox Series X, it is a capability that should be really exploited. I don't know about Series S. It's a pretty small GPU. The main issue I have with this uh, DirectML concept vis-a-vis um, -vis the consoles is that um, there's no bespoke silicon for... Um, machine learning, right? It's uh, basically extensions to the shaders, uh, which basically has, you know, this is the reason we're getting FSR 1.0 and, F and FSR 2.0, I think, because, you know, the hardware isn't there um, to, to, the, to actually accelerate this thing fast enough. I guess we'll see once um, uh, the DP4A versions of XCSS are out. We'll actually get to see how a neural net operates without 
um, access to uh, machine learning acceleration. I think that may well prove to be one of the uh, limitations of this current generation of consoles that becomes more of a weakness the longer you know the generation proceeds and with PC parts coming out that are doubling down on machine learning. So yeah, that's that's kind of my my sort of take on that at the moment. The question is really what the quality gain you're going to get is with this, just this limited support versus stuff like FSR 2.0, which uses established principles and doubles down them, on them, essentially. Okay, let's move on to the next question. This one from Dan Matt. Re-PS2 emulation on PS5. John has mentioned he prefers PS2 era on earlier games looking best on a CRT because many effects were meant to render at a lower resolution and don't scale well to higher resolutions. Isn't that more of a game-by-game -game assessment, though? The Banjo games, for example, in Rare Replay look fantastic, even up to 4K. The Banjo thing was a 360 remaster, though, wasn't it, John? Uh, well, I think, no, they actually put the N64 games. Oh, really? The new wow. versions of those. Yeah, those uh, don't look so bad at high res. So he's, he's right. It's game-by-game -game and person-by-person. Um, I, I don't think that sparse geometry and the simple textures and everything necessarily look great when displayed at super high resolutions because it essentially breaks the illusion of, but you know, for N64 era stuff, it can kind of work because the shapes are so simple and clean that, you know, it can still look kind of interesting, but on PS2, they tried to do a lot of things with building scenes and, and using textures and tricks that when you see it on a CRT, it looks really convincing and you almost can't really deduce how certain effects were achieved. But then when you actually see it running in high res on an emulator or something, uh, it kind of breaks that illusion and you can kind of see right through it. And I think it loses something big time in, in that regard, right? Like you look at, you know, Metal Gear Solid 2 on a CRT still, when you see it running, like a lot of the tricks they do with the post-processing and the way the rain looks in the in the beginning, even things like the city background texture used for the skyline, like in its original form, it's designed to look almost like photorealistic in a way. Not exactly photorealistic, but it has an element to it, especially with the interiors. With the when they do the reflections, like you'll you'll look at some of those hallways, and even now they kind of have that it almost has this like realistic look like you would expect from like a modern PBR style engine, but it's all just baked into the art. Right. And it's just very clever tricks. But when you actually see it running in high res, a lot of those tricks just don't hold up as well. And it sort of pokes holes in the presentation. And I, so I just, I've just grown to prefer the way it looks in its original format, but not always. There are some games I think that that can benefit really well from higher resolutions and look pretty darn good. So it does definitely kind of vary from game to game. What I would like here would be super sampling. Um, I think John would like that too, where you have the game outputting at a CRT-friendly resolution, 640p, let's say, but it's super sampled. Yeah, 480p, sorry, that's what I'm going to say. 480p, 640 to 480. Um, and then it's super sampled, so you don't have aliasing anymore, but you still have the obfuscation of things due to the lower output resolution. And I would think that would be really nice. That's actually awesome. I like that. Uh, I think that works really well. Also, I think that's N64. When you get one with that's modded to get rid of certain elements of it, you can actually start to appreciate like the anti-aliasing they were doing on that system. So everything has very clean, smooth edges anyway. 
and I feel like those games are really designed to look best at their original resolution. Uh, but unfortunately, there were some decisions made with the way that the system outputs video that if you haven't done the mods, it can look pretty grimy. Uh, but I, I actually think N64 games in general do not emulate well, especially when you're just like bumping up to like 640 by 480 as is often the case. I think it actually makes them look a lot worse than they did in their original form. So I'm not a big fan of that. PlayStation though, PlayStation and Saturn games, I think are the worst offenders here where those types of visuals really very rarely hold up in high resolutions. I actually think PS1 would look fantastic if you just were able to apply like the PGXP style texture correction that's in Duck Station, but keep everything else at original native res. Uh, you know, fix the texture warping, keep the rest of the same, it would look pretty darn good. Do you think there's any uh, uh, sort of mileage in incorporating the kind of CRT features that are in Power Slave exhumed? Because that was that was incredible, wasn't it? I agree. Uh, yes, absolutely. Honestly, you know, when you look at like the service that Sony's talking about, if they really wanted to do it right, they would have a mode that like tries to simulate stuff like that, like really make it look good. Dial in that CRT kind of filter and have options for dialing it in. That that would help a lot with these types of games. Yeah, this is the thing, right? It's the philosophy. I mean, going back again to the whole Spartacus thing, it's the philosophy here. If if we'd had an announcement saying, right, we've got our premium tier, um, we're going to have uh, uh, PS1, PS2 titles. This is our emulator. This is what we want to do with this emulator. This is how we want to recreate the classic PlayStation experience on current generation platforms. This is how you sell a product, right, to, to enthusiasts for those titles, right? to take a look at what's happening in the market. And, you know, when you look at stuff that's happening with like the Retro Tink 5X, when you look at those CRT feet, feet, uh, filters in um, Power Slave Exhumed, there's there's innovation in Retro that's, that's delivering some remarkable results. And it's not just, uh, you know, a kind of value add. It's, it's an actual project that requires innovation and, you know, investment. That's kind of what I'm taking in. Uh, you know, maybe maybe Spartacus will surprise us, but, you know, this is what's happening elsewhere in, in the sort of enthusiast retro market. And it's genuinely exciting stuff. And um, that's what I want to see uh, sort of being rolled out by. It's not just Sony. I mean, even Microsoft has, has things to learn. I mean, we've discussed this in the past, right, John? Scaling of OG Xbox 2D elements. I think that there's some, some real work to be get could be done to make original Xbox games really shine on the hardware. Um, and I would love to see that. Let's move on to the next question. It's another one really for you, John. It's from uh, Twisting My Melon. Good one. <laughs> All <Yeah>. right. <laughs> yeah, Neo, Neo Morpheus Trinity, Twisting My Melon. That's the, <laughs> that's the, the pantheon of hacker aliases there. Uh, <laughs> hey, um, I enjoyed the uh, Gran Turismo retrospective and I plan on spending time with GT7. I've never used manual transmission in a racing game before. Do you feel it adds anything to the gameplay experience versus just sticking with automatic? Is there any racing game that gives a good tutorial about the benefits of going manual? So here's the thing, right, John? I'm, I'm, I'm Mr. EV. Every EV basically is automatic. I haven't driven a manual car Actually, when I took my BMW for the service, I had to drive a manual Mini, and it was horrible. But you're, but you're, but you were super invested in the stick shift 
up until your latest car, right? I know, and I I searched everywhere to try to find a manual transmission in this car, and like they're just they're so rare. It's really hard to get. They don't want to make them. It's it sucks. Because uh, I do love driving manual, and as a result, unless you have an actual like racing wheel for your console or PC that has the clutch and the shifter in place and it's well done, or it's something like Ferrari F three five five Challenge. I don't know if you guys ever seen the arcade machine for that. It's triple screen, so super surround vision has the full cockpit kind of there. It has the H gate uh, for the shifter and the and the clutch and everything. I believe. It, it feels really authentic and awesome. Uh, that stuff is cool. But when you're just racing with a controller and it's just like tapping like the shoulder buttons to change gears, I know that's actually now kind of like modern uh, cars with their paddle shifters, which I never loved. Um, but as a result, I don't feel that it's that beneficial to like you can you can take some benefits of it for sure. But I really don't think it's that important in a controller based racing game. And it, doesn't, it makes it harder. Doesn't it makes it, it harder. It's not that fun. And the whole appeal of driving manual is that feeling of control you get from actually moving the shifter around, you know, throwing down the clutch, shifting into gear, changing gear strategically. Like it just the, the actual action of doing that is satisfying to me. And you lose that entirely if you're driving with a controller and it just becomes kind of annoying. So, yeah, I, I don't really recommend it. Again, unless you have one of those racing wheels that does actually have the full manual setup. And then it can be fun, I think. I was going to go to you, Alex, but uh, every time we talk about cars in a video, you just tell us how you don't know anything about cars. Uh, <laughs> have you even, have you driven a car, Alex? Yeah, I've, I haven't driven a car in about six years or so. Okay. So <laughs> maybe even longer. I don't even remember <laughs> what it last was. Did, did you so, learn stick shift? I, I've, I, I've learned it passively. Uh, I've driven a stick before, but uh, I haven't, but no, not really. Okay, uh, let's move on to our next question. And again, uh, it's <laughs> it's Abba Dabba Pling Boink <laughs> Wee. Yeah. <laughs> Abba Dabba Pling Boink Wee. <laughs> is that a Monty Python reference? I feel like it is. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I can't recall. Uh, and... Uh, Despite the hilarious hacker alias, it's actually a really good question. Uh, do you think BFI, black frame insertion, is a dying technique now that LG has removed BFI 120 hertz from its newest generation OLEDs? It's got to be one for you again, John. I don't think the technique itself is dying. Uh, I think they're they're absolutely foolish for doing this. And it's essentially says to me that like I would not purchase an LG C2 OLED. Uh, because I use this feature a lot, and I think that's subtracting a lot from something that they built into this displays prior that that's, looks so good. Like, it doesn't appeal to everyone, I get it, but, like, the whole reason that the LG OLEDs have been so well regarded is that they do typically go the extra mile in terms of features, compatibility, all of that. I think subtracting that stuff away is a boneheaded move. Like, that's the only... Like, I, I just... it It actually gets me upset, because, like... I know if, if the CX I use stopped working and I had to replace it at some point, uh, I could lose a really key feature. And especially at 120 hertz, black frame insertion at 120 dims the screen much less than when at 60 hertz, and it also isn't really visible in terms of flicker, but it makes the motion look so perfect. I know I showed this to Alex again. We talked about this before with like Halo, just 
playing that game, spinning the camera, and you turn that on, and like there's like zero visible blur. Like the persistence is perfect. It looks so good. Uh, it's it's just fantastic, and I think it just helps make game playing feel crisper, clear, and just closer to the action. So I don't understand why they felt the need to take this away and change the nature of it. And I really seriously hope they reconsider it, either adding it back to the C2, re-implementing it in the future. I'm sure there's a subset of people that just say, oh, it makes the image dark, I don't like it. Uh, but the fact is, is like there's a, there are plenty of people don't care about persistence motion blur on screens. I think it's really important. VR developers think it's important. All the headsets use it there. Uh, things like that low persistence is not something that should be shoved away it's absolutely so important and it's the one area where flat panels have failed time and time and time again they're so bad at it natively uh and it's just that's that is the reason why i continue to enjoy using crts actually because the the way motion looks is so much better it's so much better uh it's really absurd and high refresh rate is not enough to fix it. Like, I've seen the work that Blurbusters is doing. It's fantastic. And talking about, like, super high refresh rates, it does improve that. And you can actually get super clear motion on these LCDs, but it requires these higher refresh rates to really achieve it. And I need to be able to get 60 hertz content looking that clear in motion as well. And, you know, I think that's really important because... It's not so much the PC space that really needs it as much. It's very useful there, but it's this, the older game consoles and a lot of this other type of content uh, that, you know, when these older displays go away, we need something to replace it with. And I felt like LG had finally figured it out. They implemented that awesome feature, and then it got worse on the C1, and now it's way worse on the C2. And I don't understand why. It's madness. You've got a, a plethora of choices for your display, right? And you've got to basically um, pitch a feature set to, you know, to, 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 to the enthusiast. And then the enthusiast goes out there and evangelizes LG screens over, you know, say Sony or Panasonic or whatever. When you start to take away features, that evangelization disappears. And then it creates a ripple effect, which you know, sends the message that your product isn't improving year on year. It's getting worse year on year, regardless of, you know, other areas of the spec. So again, um, I agree with you, John, this is a boneheaded move, <laughs> so to speak. And, you know, arguably time should be put invested into making these features better for precisely that reason of evangelism, right? I mean, this is, it just baffles me as to why this is happening. Uh, it can't be a technical limitation of the technology, right? The screens are getting brighter. It should be better at this. They should be improving this, not just like, ah, we're just going to get rid of this. Or, you know, it doesn't matter that it's not for everyone because, again, that their displays have traditionally been focusing on offering those features that ap appeal to niches. That's what makes them great. I mean, that's one of the reasons why a lot of these other TVs, I think, are not good. Like, you look at a lot of Sony's 2020 models, the ones even got the, the 2.1 updates to add, like, you know, uh, VRR and such. Like, it's super compromised on there. It doesn't work right. Like, the feature's bad on there. 
And they're not alone in this. And a lot of these companies are just failing to implement stuff in a way that's really compelling. And LG had been very strong in this area. And the C2 is still a very good product, but taking away a feature like this kind of handicaps it for me. And as a result, you know, it's, it's has me concerned with the future for what they're doing. And I seriously hope they reconsider it. And I think we really need to, I should maybe do some kind of more content on this at some point to really try to illustrate why it's so important and also give the caveat that yes, not everybody's going to want to use this. And it depends on how sensitive you are to persistence blur. Some people don't care. A lot of us do. Some people like it. So I don't know. <laughs> okay, final question here. And this one's from Bjork Tribe. In 2004, I was two years an adult. And I love that wording. In 2004, I was two years an adult. So I assume he means he was 20. And, and bought myself my first PC for gaming. A Dell with a Radeon 9800. I managed to upgrade it. And sorry, I attempted to upgrade it a year later and discovered the horror of proprietary parts. From then on, it's been build or bust. When did you start building and what started it, Alex? I'm curious about what the proprietary parts were that he's talking about because that would have been AGP, probably. It's probably like power connectors or some of the other. They they often did like weird stuff like that. Back in the day, Dell was notorious for its notor uh, for its um, bespoke power supplies that you couldn't replace. Okay, maybe that's what it is. Uh, or, yeah, or maybe you know the motherboard uh, didn't support a later processor that he wanted. I I'm not sure, but that is interesting. What about your build? What was your first build or upgrade? First upgrade was uh, throwing in the family PC uh, some extra RAM, which that was about it. <laughs> it worked. Uh, so, uh, but the, the original full build that I did for myself, uh, was the, uh, like the X800 XT PC that I talked about a long time ago. And it's actually around this era. So a little bit later in 2004 in that aspect, um, uh, building, I, I don't know, is this thing is still a thing though? Are there still proprietary parts in the, uh, in it's the not Dell? Now, no. Okay, Pretty, good. I don't, My I goodness. don't think so. <laughs> I think it can vary. Okay. Or in general, it's not common. Oh, gosh. That's terrible. But there are still machines being made where they like to put hot glue in there. And that's uh, not a big fan. Is that a Gamers Nexus uh, special episode mm. about hot glue? <laughs> uh, I, I, love, I love this idea, though, about us going back to time looking at uh, uh, proprietary systems or something like that from that era. Because I've never heard of them. The one thing I have here is this Dell Vostro that uh, Rich had bought for me and had it sent here. And it was actually a German Dell Vostra. This is a 2007 or 2008 model. I think that's when it came out about round. It's it had the holy, the holy, well, it's not a Trinity because there's two parts. Uh, mm -hmm. had the holy combination of the uh, yes. Q6600 and the 8800 GT, and it was like 56 euros or something. It's so cheap and so beautiful. Like, And it also has the... I would consider an ultra rare Nvidia 8800 uh, uh, GT, uh, which is, you know, like, it's just gorgeous looking part. I've shown it on the channel before, uh, but I've gone inside that and the proprietary things it has inside it, I think is actually the power supply, uh, sadly enough. And of course the motherboard, which, you know, um, that's like the ultimate shame is that the motherboard could actually have been like some sort of gigabyte thing, but then they have like this, I think it's like Phoenix or 
American Mega Systems uh, BIOS on it that just lets you do nothing. You can like maybe change the color of like the front LED, and that's all you can do inside the BIOS. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, the, these things back in time. I know LGR goes back in time and looks at um, uh, those kind of systems, those OEM machines quite a bit. And they're usually pretty interesting, some of the stuff they did. Uh, maybe that's something for the future. My first, so my first, actually, my first upgrade was the 486DX266, so I put more RAM in. But then the first actual build RAM. was, was uh, yeah, it was 1998, I think. And I got a Pentium 2 400, I think. It was it was around the time of Jurassic Park Trespasser, uh, and yeah, I had been using a K six two thirty three PC before that, which I since sold to a friend, and then I essentially back then it was a little tricky, right? I actually was introduced to a guy who could source parts, and that was key, right? Because there wasn't really easy ways to just go online and buy your parts up, uh, so I actually talked to a guy who then I you know we figured out all the parts I wanted and he ordered them all. I paid him, brought them home and built the whole machine myself. And it was a P2 400. I had a voodoo two in there. Uh, I paired it with initially it was like a matrix card, but I think I right around the time I put an Intel I seven forty card in there as the two D card. And then eventually like a TNT two or something, or uh, I changed cards a lot back then cause they were affordable enough to do that. Um, and yeah, that was a, that was a pretty good PC. I played a lot of great PC games on that. I remember overclocking it a little bit. Uh, I was thrilled to go from like 20 to 30 FPS in Unreal to like 60 ish much of the time, which is a huge upgrade. Uh, the Quake engine game suddenly ran like a dream. That was great. You know, I could play, of course, Trespasser ran horribly, but it was more playable, which was cool. Uh, stuff like that. So that was the first PC. I really enjoyed making it. And from then, you know, that's when I got into that whole high school thing of uh, I helped out in the computer lab being a proper nerd, uh, server maintenance there. And I used to build com computers for family friends. That was the thing I had ended up doing a lot. Like, oh, yeah, you know, computers. Can you get can you get us a computer for a good price kind of thing? Because back then. Back then, it actually made sense financially to build over buying them pre-built because the pre-built ones were actually quite a bit more expensive, and you could source you could source parts and build your own for cheaper. Uh, it's a little different these days, I think, in that the pre-built ones tend to be cheaper, but they skimp out on parts. So yeah, so my first upgrade was um, a DX two sixty six, principally to play Car and Driver. I think I've mentioned that in the past. Just like a driving simulator from like early 90s. And it was the first PC game that I saw that really blew me away to the point where it was like, how do I get to play this at home? In terms of the first build that I did, um, I think it was when um, I was developing Digital Foundry's first HD capture solution because um, the card that we were using was like this $3,000 part that was used in the medical and uh, military imaging sectors. And it was a PCIe, uh, no, not PCIe, PCI um, uh, 66 uh, megahertz. It was, I think it's typically 33. Basically, it was a 64-bit PCI slot. And to do that, uh, to actually use that um, card at full bandwidth, I needed to get a specific motherboard that would support that. 
and um, yeah, that's that's what it was, 64-bit PCI. And um, then I had access, this was like a 2004 capture card and it could do 1080p. Uh, unfortunately, it could only do 1080p at five frames per second. Uh, but it, you know, with that 64-bit PCI's uh, PCI slot, I could actually do 1440 by 1080 at 60 frames per second, um, which was uh, which was like there was nothing like it at the time. But that's why I had to build that machine. And uh, yeah, I think I had a Radeon uh, 9800 Pro in that, or otherwise an X800 XT. So that's what I remember of that. And I think it was a Pentium 4 that I had in that. Was it better or worse than the Radius Raster Ops system? <laughs> that was a lot better than that. Yeah. Uh, it was, uh, yeah, that was, that was great. That was a Mac part. That was go, going back to the, uh, like 92, 93. But yeah, that was um, when I was still working in magazines, we had to move on to Macs from our black and white PCs. And uh, that capture card was like, wasn't really a card. It was like an extra box that sat on top of the Mac. And it was capable of really good quality. It could do um, uh, 640 by 480 interlaced which for you know early 90s is pretty amazing but yeah that's 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 my build history but yeah i agree i mean i, I build all my pcs these days um simply because there's certain quirks in design that i want i mean the last build that i did is the 5950x uh, which is a consumer level uh, cpu which presented pcie lane difficulties you only get a certain number of PCIe lanes, and I wanted a huge amount of capture cards and NVMe slots in there. And uh, I ended up getting an MSI X570 Unify, which basically did everything that I asked for in terms of PCIe lanes, even though in theory there weren't enough PCIe lanes. So I'm assuming there's some kind of chipset hilarity going on there, which which made all of this possible. But it was like a specific combination of like, I wanted to support the three, uh, the 3090, two capture cards, uh, at least three NVMe drives. It shouldn't work on a consumer level chipset with a limited number of PCIe lanes, but somehow it did. Can we just give a shout out to MSI real quick? Cause like this new PC I built recently has been so stable with that MSI board. Like my last boards have been like AS, Asus and ASRock and everything. And I just kind of got to this point where I just assumed that, yeah, modern motherboards are just kind of flaky. Sometimes they do weird things. Sometimes things don't work. They act up. And, you know, I just kind of accepted that. But this one has been so solid. Uh, I'm actually really impressed with how much more stable it's been, despite having maxed out the number of, of drives that you can possibly connect to this. And every single USB port is filled and many of those USB ports plug into hubs that then have more stuff on them. Uh, that's the kind of stuff having all those drives, all those USB ports, really high end GPUs and stuff, all that stuff connected at once seemed to cause a lot of problems for many motherboards, but it actually works like brilliantly on this one. So, uh, and it sounds like you're using MSI as well on your build. So that's, uh, that's great. It is good. Okay, right. I think that's it. I think that's it for the show. That's the final question. If you did enjoy it, please do like, subscribe, share, uh, ring the bell for those uh, notionally instant notifications. No guarantees there. That is my disclaimer. And um, <laughs> uh, yes, a DF <laughs> supporter program. Join us. A brilliant community there on our Discord. 
uh, always tons of excellent bonus material, early access and whatnot, in addition to early access to this very show, plus the ability uh, to ask these questions and to create these fantastical uh, handles, which give us a lot of joy. Be sure to tune into Rich's weekly stream over on Bio Richie Plus, where he <laughs> just plays just he just plays Bio Mutant there every day. So like eight hours of Bio Mutant. He's not one. It's, it's an a, it's an AI version of me. It's, it's, it's not the real me. But that's it. That's the show. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>